At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. I have Budweiser. It says right on it, King of Beers, so it must be true. So it must be true. All right, I have Narragansett. That's foaming. Okay. I've got a Pabst Blue Ribbon. My grandfather's <laughs> a beer of choice. Whenever I think of Pabst Blue Ribbon, I, you know, I think of Blue Velvet. Hi, and welcome to Burnt Toast from Food52.com, a podcast about what we all talk about around the stove and at the water cooler. It's what doesn't make it on the website, but what we're all talking about otherwise. I'm Kenzie Wilbur, the managing editor of Food 52, and I'm here with Amanda Hesser. And our guest today is Garrett Oliver, who's the brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewery, editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Beer, and many other beer-related things. We're going to get into some crazy discussions about bro culture around beer, the differences between East and West Coast IPA, and how cannabis might play a role in that, and the relationship between Negro Modella and polka music. You you published a, a piece on GQ called <laughs> My Name is Garrett Oliver and I Hate Crappy Beer. And it was it, a retort. It was a retort. <laughs> uh, it was a retort to David Chang, who, for a lack of a better term, likes swill. That is that is crappy beer. Can you tell us a little bit about you know what you wrote about? You know, it wasn't simply that uh, if, if David Chang likes crappy beer, that doesn't mean I don't like his pork buns. You know, they're very good. Sure. But he had told me so many times that he liked crappy beer everywhere I met him pretty much that finally I heard it one more time. And I was like, you know – when he said that uh, that he was not part of the culinary establishment or he had a strange relationship with the culinary establishment, that was what actually ticked me off. And I think in a way, for a lot of people, whether it's chefs or I was reading something the other day about sommeliers, mm -hmm. you know, it's a way of kind of showing that you're down with the bro culture <laughs> and like you're like uh, you're a regular dude even though you're starring in an Audi commercial. And so it's like I'm going to show you that uh, that I'm one of the people by drinking this stuff that I acknowledge is really bad and I don't really want it. But see, I'm going to drink it because I'm a bro. Sure. I, I'm glad you brought up that. Well, was it the punch piece that you were reading on how sommeliers turn to crappy beer at the end of a shift? Yeah. I, interestingly, I was, uh, I was interviewed for that piece and they left – that view out. And I have a lot of friends. In fact, probably more than half my friends are sommeliers or involved in the wine culture in some ways. And I, you know, I love wine. I think wine is, is wonderful and fascinating. I think beer is demonstrably far more diverse. Mm -hmm. And I can say that without any fear of successful contradiction. But, you know, the, the idea that you should be one person or the other strikes me as ridiculous. Well, I think the point, too, was made that it it's a rest for your palate because you're tasting all of this complexity all day long and then you taste what you described as 
veritably nothing. And as someone who probably spends a lot of your day tasting through beers and thinking about their complexity, how do you feel about that? Do you want something that's simple at the end of the day? Sometimes, but simple to me doesn't mean flavorless. The British have a great term for, they have two great terms for for wine that kind of talks about what I like sometimes. One is plonk, which is not a word that we really have in American English. And plonk is perfectly okay wine that you drink in a backyard at a barbecue. It's not yellowtail, you know, (laughs) but there are a lot of good wines that are inexpensive. And what strikes me, and most people don't realize, is that the wine and beer market in the United States are exactly the same. They are 10% of the top, the stuff above $8 a bottle, the stuff that we all talk about on the wine side, and it's 90% at the bottom. In the case of wine, jug wines, box wine, bulk wine. That's 90% of the American wine market. However, when people talk about beer, they talk at the 90% at the bottom. When people talk about wine, they talk at the 10% at the top. Mm -hmm. And craft beer is actually notably larger than better wine in the United States, quite a bit larger. Does it get written about? Does it get talked about? No, only when David Chang tries to put down people who are enjoying it. You know, I do think that there is a place for, like, you know, a simple beer. I think you were making that point. But to me, I feel like there are other choices that are are not exactly craft beer, but also seem just to be better. Like, you know, if I'm at an Asian restaurant or, you know, I might try to, if they have it on the menu, like a tiger or a beer Lao. And I'm just curious what you think of those, what are essentially like commercial Asian beers. And maybe there are other examples elsewhere in the world. But it seems to me like there there are actually like decent choices in that realm. Oh, I think that there are. I mean, I think that, you know, what you can't take away from the big companies is that until recently, they had better quality control than craft brewers. You know, it was simply true that when it came to the things that matter from a technical point of view, exclusion of oxygen, you know, uh, proper processing, everything else, you know, they didn't have the coolness factor, but they had objective quality. And objective quality meaning, you know, do you hit your target? And there's something to be said for that. I think that the craft brewers for a long time didn't value your ability to repeat what it was that you had done. Mm-hmm. which uh, to me is the essence of of being a good brewer, is your ability to actually do what you came to do, just the same as it would be for a chef. So Pabst Blue Ribbon, so that was my grandfather's drink of choice, or beer of choice. And uh, he wasn't actually like a huge drinker, but like on the weekends, he would open one like in every room and then just leave them there. And then wow. if my, so that my grandmother always thought he was just drinking one beer. Um, oh, no. <laughs> he would, so he could move from room to room. That is and, ingenious. Uh, it was kind of genius. Wow. You know, it's like I never <laughs> thought about that. Why, you know, why carry popcorn around or anything? Just like set up drinks and, why not and, have and five? snacks. You yeah. know, in every room. <laughs> totally. One in the garage. Yeah. One out on the bench that he used to sit on. I one inside. Get, yeah. My dad grew up, I grew up with my dad drinking very, very, what we would consider crappy beer, like Bex and Coors and Coors Light. And I think it's because he would like come back from a long day of work and want something really refreshing. Did you grow up with any kind of beer culture? Not really. I mean, I had an, I had you know uncles who drank the mass market beer at the time, and it was like it was Miller time or whatever else. But I think the difference for for me, you know, from even a lot of craft beer fans, is that there was never a time that I liked that beer ever. I mean, not when I was in college. I never had a single, you know, bottle or can 
of mass market beer that I enjoyed in my mm-hmm. whole life. I drank it. We drank everything. I still remember that Tuesday was kamikaze night at Molly's. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, we, we, drank, we drank whatever was on special. And frankly, to tell you the truth, we actually drank Budweiser when we had money. And we almost never had any money. But, you know, we were poor college students. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that we could afford otherwise was horrible. Mm-hmm. At least the Budweiser kind of tasted like water. And that was acceptable. And so, you know, we would pay extra for it because it didn't taste terrible. And then it was only when I moved to England that I discovered that beer could actually be delicious and that it had really nice flavors and that it was interesting. And I was like, they've lied to me. They told me that that stuff was beer. It was kind of like arriving at my first cheese shop in Paris. And I'm like, what is that smell? And they said, it is the fromage, monsieur. And I said, no, no, I've had all three cheeses and none of them smell like that. <laughs> there are only three, right? There are only three, unless you want to count shredded mozzarella, which was the fourth one. <laughs> so your time in England, that's when you were actually managing rock bands. Is that right? I was stage managing rock bands, University of London Union, ULU, wow. for those who, it's still there, still rocking. So don't you find that this is an incredibly exciting time for beer? It seems to me like... It has finally become not, I mean, not just like vastly popular, but actually like very much respected culturally. I think it's it's the most exciting time for beer. But I think at the same time, and it's great to be here you know, with you guys, is that uh, the media writes about beer as a as a as a business and a culture story. But, you know, the wine section is still called the wine section. It's dining and wine. It's wine and this and wine and that. When beer is actually larger than wine. Agreed. But don't you think, like, I actually think that's kind of like, in some ways, it's like beer has, like, been liberated from the stuffiness of wine. Like, if critics were writing about beer, I certainly it would, like, raise its status among a certain group. But then it would also have the risk of putting off others. And I think that the one thing that's sort of... It's such an everyman drink, and it's like everyone can everyone can drink beer, and you and there's a feeling that you don't have to be educated, which I think is why people are maybe more adventurous with beer than they are wine. Well, I think that P- Americans, in particular, you know, Americans and and British people, principal among them, have overcomplicated wine. I mean, you've traveled mm-hmm. as, at least as much as I have, and you kind of realize that you know wine, you know is not some special drink in France or Spain or Italy. It can be, but it's both high and low. You know, and when you go to, you know, you can go to any little Italian town and go to the cantina and fill up your wine bottle for a euro. It's something that you drink everywhere and it's considered to be a gradation. And it is the drink of the people and, and always was. And it's also the drink at the high table. And beer was always the same way until it was turned into a commodity in the United States in the 20th century. And so we we are having a bounce back, but I think that in beer and wine, each side wants what the other one has. You know, I sat on a wine, <laughs> I sat, on, I, I chaired a champagne panel once with uh, people from a, you know, one of the top champagne great houses together with some sommeliers and I was just moderating a panel. And what champagne wants is what beer has, which is approachability, mm-hmm. And being freed from occasions, people want them to drink champagne just like a drink, mm-hmm. not something you get twice a year, mm-hmm. but something you might get anytime. So they want that. We would like to actually be at a restaurant. But I think you are. Like, I feel like beer has like, I mean, you go to 
great restaurants and beer has like stealthily made its way onto menus. I feel like servers talk about the beers on the on the menu. People like very comfortably order beer, but you also like it, it, there's not this kind of stuffy reverence for it. Like, so I see a little bit of your hesitation here, Garrett, and I'm curious what you think. The what what are some of the obstacles if 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 beer hasn't made its way into a lot of the great restaurants already? Where you know where does it still have to go? I would say that the American restaurant is uh, is interesting this way. Beer is, I think, the only food or drink that you can think of where it is common for the customers to know more about the drink than the people running the house. In fact, more about even the drinks that are on the menu. I'm curious um, about your thoughts um, on breweries like breweries being bought up by larger companies um, and kind of sharing the love a little bit. I think that as craft brewers, we do have to ask ourselves, you know, if we if we have an overall goal, you know, what is it? You know, because the big breweries aren't going to die. And I don't think that we even like would want them to. They're old, uh, uh, large companies for whom a lot of people have worked. A lot of people have enjoyed their work. And so what do we want? Well, you know, in some ways, yeah, I think we do want them to become us. But I think that the process of it is a bit shocking. You know, and, you know, they you are at war with these people, you know, in the marketplace and the tax that tactics that are used are not fair. And so it's not an even playing field by any stretch of the imagination. You know, and you are, you know, you're in the trenches still slogging that out every day. That's the business side. And from a cultural point of view, I think that we have to get over the idea that some of us, yes, are going to end up selling companies. That's going to happen in any business, and I think that there is a natural evolution. I mean, at least it's nice to be in a situation where, frankly, all the action is at our end of the playing field. Everybody wants to be what you know what craft beer is, and we can't really tell them, well, you have no right to brew the same things that I've been making. That's kind of a ridiculous statement. Do we want to see them called by the same names that we are or, you know, or have our identities? No, I don't think anybody would want that. And, you know, when you have a, a, a big brewery with the face of a, of a small brewery, that, that, that story only goes one layer deep. When you peel it away, there's something completely different behind it. And that's the part that, you know, it would be nice to see change. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great in clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. Well, I was also just going to, I was curious what you thought of the Narragansett. So it has slightly more bitterness than the Budweiser. You know, it's a little bit, you know, it's also slightly maltier. It has a little bit more of a biscuity, you know, character to it. It's relatively sort of clean and bland, but it's a more bready, you know, kind of bland than kind of a lightly just, you know, barely perceptible fruitiness, Mm -hmm. kind of apple fruitiness to the Budweiser. So, I mean, they're not the same. You know, they do have different flavors to them. It's just the level of flavor to me is kind of uh, uh, rather low and unbalanced. I actually wanted to ask you about fruit, like fruit and beers. 
is that generally is that okay? Is that a I sort of I I always pass by those in the beer store because I I am a little scared of them. I feel like they're going to be too sweet or are they called lambics? Uh, or, is well, that a, or is that a particular, well, well, particular kind of fruit beer? A particular type of fruit beer, you know, and I guess when it comes to that, I would say uh, what's my favorite line from Spinal Tap? It's a fine line between clever and stupid. <laughs> 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 the traditional fruit beers would be you have a spontaneously fermented, very sour, very dry beer aged in a barrel probably for a year or two. And when the fruit comes into season, rather than have the fruit mostly spoil because you couldn't eat it fast enough, we're talking about hundreds of years ago, you would then put it into the beer and it would become part of the beer. And it was the same reason people made pumpkin ales. It's like it's food and it's growing wild. You do not let it go away. It's like the zucchini bread of beers. (laughs) Ponzanella. I mean, everything. Mm -hmm. You just didn't throw things away. Mm -hmm. And so all of these resulted in, in hybrid beers that were, you know, beer with fruit in them. And people have been making those for thousands of years. They're, they're nothing new. What is relatively new is the sweet tooth aspect because these were generally really dry and sharp and funky. But just as funky is coming back in wine, mm-hmm. funky is also coming back in a big way in beer. Beer kind of led the way first. And now you're kind of seeing everybody talking about so-called natural wine which is interesting for me because now I see the wine world and the beer world really paralleling each other. Can we get your thoughts on this Pabst Blue Ribbon? <laughs> <laughs> I have not tasted that in some years. Well, that's interesting because it's sort of as if you took the Budweiser, added very, very slightly more bitterness, and then took away everything else. Like the fruity flavor is kind of gone. And so you know, of the three of them, it probably has the most linear flavor profile. And so if you're drinking purely for refreshment and really essentially nothing else, um, you know, it might be, you know, a a perfectly reasonable choice if that's, you know, if that's really all you're looking for out of a beer. Well, tell us some of your, like, give us your favorite beers right now that you've been drinking. One of my favorite things for the last, say, six or seven years since it came out is a beer by uh, Fritz Bream, you know, in Germany, uh, which is called 1809 Berliner Weiss. It's a very old style. It's light. It's wheat beer, you know, at about 5%. It is tart, but not sour, sour. It's really refreshing, but it's got all this other stuff going on. But that doesn't mean that it's not perfectly uh, crushable, as people like to say, on a hot day. (laughs) I mean, it kind of just seems like, you know, I want a big bowl of, of mussels or something and like several glasses of that. And if I leave out my own beers, <laughs> which, you know, I drink a lot of summer ale and Brooklyn half ale and stuff like that and Sriracha Ace uh, over the summer. But uh, a lot of my favorite beers, you know, are are still Saison's. In the Northeast, you have uh, brewers like Allagash, you know, doing great stuff, not just Allagash White, uh, which is a really nice beer, but then all of their very wide range of specialties. Mm. And so, you know, I think that what's fun as an American brewer is that uh, the United States is now the center of the world, you know, for beer, where when I started, it was like, you know, when you went overseas and you said, I'm an American brewer, people would say, oh, yes, I'm so sorry. I've, I've heard of your American beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How dreadful. <laughs> you know? And, you know, it was kind of true. And you kind of hung your head, you know, in shame, except for maybe your own stuff and a few other guys that you knew. Now when you show up, it's like we're, 
you know, uh, the flow is certainly very much in both directions. So we're curious about, um, you know, in the rise of the American beer industry, if there's a difference regionally between, you know, different styles and brewers. There definitely is. And it's getting wider, <laughs> which is, uh, to me, really interesting. I mean, it used to be there were parts of the country that, you know, were very, you know, we considered them backwards. They didn't have, you know, they were brewing stuff that we considered to be like from the early 90s when we had moved along. We were brewing things that were more Belgian and they were still kind of stuck with the older British styles. Now, everything's kind of spread everywhere and areas that before didn't have anything are doing some of the wildest, most interesting things. Prairie Artisan in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, uh, uh, coming out with so many funky, popular beers. But the other thing that I find interesting is as the India Pale Ale, the IPA, has become the lead style of craft brewing, which itself is an interesting development, now there are different types of IPA. So the West Coast IPA is notably different than the East Coast. How so? The West Coast style has a lot less malt backbone to it. It is very highly hopped, but the hops they actually select have a different character to them, which is often referred to, even by them, as dank. Um, now, in and food food word list, yes, and uh, sometimes it even <laughs> says so on the bottles. You know, uh, this is uh, dank. There's, I think, a beer from Stone Brewery that says the dankest beer. You know, like anywhere, and it, what, re what it refers to specifically is what in brewing technically is called allium character, referring to onions, chives, garlic. And then dank, of course, coming out of the world of marijuana, which is the nearest botanical relative to the hop. So I have a, a sneaking suspicion that, you know, people out west uh, liking one type of uh, part of the family, cannabichia, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> really kind of uh, took that love into, uh, you know, into the hop realm as well. And they love beers that smell that way, whereas the west coast, uh, east coast brewers will tend tend to prefer fruitier, more citrusy, more piney, and the dank character is generally eschewed. So the hop grower actually hears a different voice in each ear. The one guy says, grow the hops this way to get oh, this yeah, character, sure. and the other guy says, no, under no circumstances <laughs> do we want you know, our beer smelling like that. So I can actually give up hops that I don't want, and there's somebody waiting to get what I'm tossing out. I have found the rise of IPAs really fascinating because, you know, American beer culture has been, you know, the, like the beers before us. It's a very kind of like easy drinking beer culture. And IPAs are challenging. You know, it's interesting to me that they've been such a hit given that they're not like friendly on your first taste. I mean, I love them, but it's definitely kind of slaps you in the face a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that people first liked about them. You know, they had a punk aspect to, you know, to them around. that they were like, you, that. I mean, they had some shock value. I mean, when I first started, I'm talking about I've been brewing professionally now for 26 years. So when I started brewing, India Pale Ale IPA was a British historical style. It was not brewed in the United States, and there was, and it was barely brewed at all in Britain. There were beers that were named IPA, but they were like 3% bitters that bore no resemblance to the style. And then you started to see them pop up here and there. In 1989 or 1990, we put out a beer called Rough Draft IPA. 
uh, at Manhattan Brewing Company it's when I name. was uh, down there. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought I, was, I thought I was very clever at the time. <laughs> and people were like, whoa, you know, I mean, this big blast of uh, hops. And so there was definitely, you know, a wish, you know, to give some shock to people. But what happened, which is really interesting, is that it's almost like chili peppers. If you start eating really spicy food, mm -hmm. you get really used to it. And this is what brewers refer to as the lupulin shift, lupulin being the kind of sticky resin that gives the bitterness and, and some flavors to beer. And people just start getting used to it. And when I started to go out to the West Coast and I would see these really super bitter beers, I would be like, well, people are drinking those as like kind of a joke. It's just a little bit of fun here and there, but people aren't really drinking them, drinking them. And then you got out to San Diego and places like that, and they were just drinking, you know, they were, they were drinking these like crazy. Wow. And that is now becoming the new normal. Can we talk about home brewing? Sure. Do you feel like it is possible to make a good beer at home? Absolutely. People make spectacular beer at home. You know, I think the only, the only area where it gets strange is that many people think that home brewing and professional brewing are the same thing or even that they're similar. And they're really... I mean, they're kind of related, but not that much. Why don't we maybe have him taste the Modelo okay. and the, end on that? So, so Modelo. Now, yeah. I will I will happily admit to the fact that when I'm in Mexico, there are times that I drink uh, Negro Modelo, you know, which to me is kind of interesting because Negro Modelo is, a, is kind of a darker beer, which grows out of the period where, and people don't remember this, Mexico was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire for three years. Well, and the Emperor Maximilian ruled over, you know, over Mexico, having come from Austria. They sent him home in a box. They didn't like him very much. But what they kept is the beer style, the Viennese beer style, which then turns into the darker Mexican beers, which you see Dos Equis Amber, Noche Buena, things sure. like that, and also polka music. What? So if, if, you want, <laughs> if, you, if you wonder why a, a, a mariachi band oh sounds gosh. like a polka band, it is a polka band. Wow. Exactly the same music, different outfits. Um, I feel like so, you just blew my mind a little bit. Yeah. Well, I was just talking this morning to Chef at uh, Contra, you know, Fabian Von Hoske <laughs> from Mexico City. That's and, amazing. And his family comes out of that background. But anyway, going back to, you know, uh, uh, our Modelo here, which is not the uh, dark type. The matter at hand. Oh, the matter at hand. Would you say it dances like a polka band? Uh, uh, I wish <laughs> that it danced. <laughs> it uh, it's It's... It's quite thin from start to finish. And it's uh, nice and warm now, so it, you yeah, know, it's it, really... it, it has it has few aspects. It's I'll brisk. put it that way. It's a uh, it, it could be brisk if it were you know chilled to like twenty eight degrees. But I mean, again, when I look at these, you can look at it in a number of different ways. You know, does it do they have positive aspects? To me, no. However, there are a lot of flaws that beer can have. A spectacular mm. range of things that can go wrong. And, you know, in these beers, those things have not gone wrong. They have made sure they don't. The beers don't taste like butter. You know, they don't taste sour. They don't taste this. They don't taste that. So beer, like wine, has had massive technical improvements. And some of these brewers, people like Pabst, people like Anheuser-Busch, were – they had scientists, just droves of scientists working for them. And they were all part of the same culture that made – Wonder Bread and Kraft Slices and whatever. And we forget that that was considered progress at a time. There was a reason why it was called Wonder Bread. So mm. in a way, are these are drinking these beers sort of like going a little retro? 
Absolutely. But I mean, I think that what's ha- what happened is that American craft beer tracks Amer- that the other kind of basic foods. Exactly. The rise of craft beer it ha- is no different than the rise of good cheese. Remember, when, you know, when I was a kid, we ate, you know, seal test ice cream. The ice creams were garbage. Mm-hmm. They were full of gums mm-hmm. and air and, 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 and everything else. Yeah, you, you had three. And, and now we're eating all this good ice cream. We have really nice chocolate. Uh, we have great cheese shops. You know, my local guys in Brooklyn are called Stinky. So, I mean, we're, we see this all come back at the same time. And what happened is that American food culture was ruined largely in the middle of the last century by food technology. And so we had everything in the world because we had everybody in a place like New York City. Then it got squeezed down to this very tight group of foods and beers and everything. We all ate the same stuff, 1950s, 1960s, 70s. And now we are in recovery. And the recovery includes lots of foods besides beer. So now what we have is that beer is now becoming normal. The thing is that because we were essentially living in the matrix when, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't know we were inside the matrix, but we were in an artificial world of food. You went into the supermarket and most of the stuff labeled as food wasn't even food. Mm-hmm. Now everything's becoming food again. And going back to the IPA thing, there was something about – and Dave Wondrich writes about this beautifully – about the idea that you had to – that there were drinks that you had to – get to know. You know, cocktails, some of them are really, you know, have bitter, bitter characteristics, et cetera. And people used to look forward to becoming adults and really kind of growing into these tastes. And now sometimes it seems like a lot of people want to embrace their inner child and, you know, eat and drink sweet things. And I think that there is a current running against that. It's like, no, actually, we are adults and we love great stuff. And that includes bitter things and, you know, and thing, and other flavors, too. And IPAs that smack us in the face a little bit. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks so much for having me. And teaching us about polka and Negro Modelo. Well, beer is always interesting. So that's it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Our producer is Tim Einenkel, and thanks also to Laura Mayer, Andy Bowers, and Henry Malofsky at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter address is at Food52, and you can email us at editors at food52.com. If you like the show, tell everyone you know and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you have any comments or questions about beer, feelings about PBR, we want to know about them. So tweet them and hashtag them with F52Podcast, and we'll share some of our favorites. For Amanda Husser and Garrett Oliver, I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.